This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? This is your Felony Friday host, John Odermatt. Before we get started with today's show... I want to tell you about another podcast, not another libertarian podcast, but an entertaining podcast, one that's focused on reality TV, trash TV, and it's hosted by some familiar hosts. It's myself, Brian McWilliams, and the elusive legal counsel of the Lions of Liberty, Rico. Now, the three of us are doing the, the things that men around this world need done. Of course, if you're a husband or a boyfriend or whatever, you've probably been forced to watch trash reality TV with your significant other. So what do we do? We break it down. We drink beer. We talk about these shows. We tear these shows apart. We talk about everything ridiculous going on with these insane people. And we have some fun while we're doing it. So tune in. You can find Bravo and Beer. That's the name of the show. I don't know if I said that. Bravo and Beer. You can find that wherever podcasts are found. And uh, you don't even have to watch these shows. I mean, it's great if you do. You can just tune in and uh, enjoy the hilarity. All right. Bravo and Beer. Check it out. Welcome to Felony Friday. A presentation of the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, John Odermatt. Felons, friends, and freedom lovers, welcome back to another edition of Felony Friday, a weekly show right here on the Lions of Liberty podcast. Felony Friday is one of three shows. We got our Monday show hosted by Mark Clare, where Mark's talking to entrepreneurs, he's talking to leaders in the libertarian movement. We got Wednesday. Electric Liberty Land, hosted by Brian McWilliams. It's comedy, culture, liberty, insanity. It's fantastic. Check it out. Get all three of these shows by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts. Please do it. And after you subscribe, after you listen, and especially if you've been a longtime listener, please leave us a uh, five-star rating and review. And even better, even if you don't listen using Apple Podcasts, do it there because they uh, control the have the most influence and the most downloads and you get on the charts. So please... Go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review, leave us a uh, five-star rating, and you can even put a question that you want us to talk about on this show. We, we have another episode coming up soon where we're going to address uh, questions like that. So leave us a question, whatever you want to ask us, and uh, we'll do a special show um, to be announced where we uh, answer questions from reviews. So I want to turn towards today's episode I have another interview with an inmate on death row. Uh, we're going to be talking first with Tessie Castillo, um, who is the author, co-author, uh, and really the driving force behind the Crimson Letters, and another co-author from the Crimson Letters, Lau May, who is on death row. So we'll be talking with Tessie first, then Lau. You don't want to miss this interview, guys. All right, let's get right to it. Okay, today on Felony Friday, we have another interview with an inmate who is on death row, Lyle May. Uh, he is also a co-author of The Crimson Letters, Voices from Death Row. And a couple weeks ago, we spoke with um, really the 
the force behind that book, the the creator of that book, and a co-author of of uh, the Crimson Letters, Tessie Castillo. And we're going to welcome her back today. Uh, before we are joined by Kyle Tessie, welcome back to Felony Friday. Thanks for having me back again. Well, thanks for coming back on the show. And I'm not going to, you know, make you rehash your your interview from last time. <laughs> but just for for those who maybe didn't hear that, and I will encourage everyone to go back and listen to that. I think that was two weeks ago, and I'll link to that on the show notes page, of course. But for those that didn't hear it. Um, what is the Crimson Letters? What What is the book? And uh, what's the reason that uh, really initiated and caused you, inspired you to write it? Sure. Um, so I was granted an extraordinary opportunity in 2014 to teach a writing class to men on death row in North Carolina in Central Prison. And I was so moved by what I saw there inside the prison and by their writing that I wrote a letter to a local newspaper advocating for their humanity. And for that, my class was canceled. So Crimson Letters is a response to that. I reached out to several of my former students and asked if they would be willing to put together a book. And the essays uh, within Crimson Letters describe how they got to prison and also the level of growth and self-reflection that they've done since they've been there as they search for meaning and purpose, even under a death sentence. So uh, I know when we talked last time about the reaction and maybe the, you thought the audience was a little bigger than, than you anticipated. Um, mm-hmm. And really, I mean, to be honest, it, it doesn't surprise me that, it, that you know, it's getting a, okay. people want to read it and it's getting a, a, you know, a good, a good response. But for people out there who maybe um, are thinking about buying it, uh, but haven't pulled the trigger yet. Why should somebody uh, choose to read the Crimson Letters? I think especially now with what we're going through in our country, this period of upheaval, it's more important than ever that we understand the things that unite us as people and don't always focus on the divisions. And that's what Crimson Letters really does is it it shows you, I mean, you're reading about people on death row who've been through experiences that are very different than most of us have ever been through, but you'd actually be surprised at how much in that book will resonate with you, how much you can relate to um, that these men have been through. I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and I think I said last time that, you know, with these stories, I mean, obviously, for people who aren't in prison or haven't done time in prison, or even they, they may not even know anybody who's who's been to prison. So you might think there's no way that you can possibly relate to it. But even just taking you know, sort of, you know, motivation and inspiration from their stories, from their attitude, um, you know, how they're able to take this situation that they're in where they're they're in prison on death row and still find a way to turn it around and... Uh, you know, find a way to positively contribute to society, which I think is just just amazing. And I mean that that alone is 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 worth the read in in my eyes. I want to ask you one more question here before we get Lyle on the phone. And I don't think I asked you this last time, but throughout the process of pulling this book together and um, you know writing your pieces and editing and you know corresponding back and forth with the inmates on, on their pieces. What is the biggest thing that you really learned about yourself 
through this process? You know, something that, you know, prior to it, maybe you thought you weren't capable of or, or something that you uh, overcame? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this whole process from the very beginning has been a long um, learning curve about learning how to confront my own fears and my own doubts. There's a lot that I was afraid of in writing this book. I was afraid of how people would respond. I was afraid about whether I wanted to pigeonhole myself as someone who speaks on the death penalty. Um, I was afraid, and I'm still afraid, about potential retaliation against my co-authors from the prison. Um, And if if they do retaliate, just the guilt that I would feel, uh, having known that it was my actions that caused that retaliation. Um, and so every day is, is kind of a struggle <laughs> to try to overcome that fear and to dig really deep in, and find courage. Um, so that was something surprising about myself. And also there were so many points throughout this process where I almost gave up. Um, and there were points where my co-authors almost gave up or, or did give up in some cases. We did lose mm-hmm. one of the co-authors um, in this process. There were originally five. Uh, so it's, it's just, you know, digging deep again and keep going a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. And the fact that we even published this book at all is still amazing to me. <laughs> I just look at it sometimes and I think, wow, it's really there. <laughs> it really That's happened. Awesome. I didn't think that it would. Yeah, it's one of those things you put so much work into it. You're moving along and you have your, your eyes set on the goal. And then when you're there, you're like, wow, this is, how did I do that? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, I'm, also, I'm also curious with writing this book, and this is something that, that I deal with. You know, I've never spent time in prison. You know, I, I have had, you know, uh, relatives and, and you know, people who have. And um, you know, that's one of the reasons that got me involved and sort of inspired me to start this show. But do you ever feel, because I feel this personally, a little bit of imposter syndrome, um, talking about these things, not having the personal experiences? Yes. And that's why I always invite my co-authors to do the interviews with me. Mm-hmm. I, I sort of consider myself a, a conduit for them. You know, they need me to help organize these things and email the necessary people to be able to set up interviews and to set up events. But they're the stars of the show, um, and that's the way that it should be. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm glad you overcame any imposter syndrome that you had because without you, this this book wouldn't have happened. So being a conduit, I think, is equally as important as uh, you know these stories themselves because we wouldn't hear these stories unless you had taken the risk and gone out there and actually you know put this book on paper. So thank you for that. No, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we are going to uh, get Lyle on the phone. Um, Hey, let's take a real quick commercial break. I want to tell you about a great coffee company, Lorenzotti Italy. This is a company started by libertarians, two guys, Robert and Zach. They couldn't be more different, but they both love coffee. And they love that experience of that small, independent coffee shop. They actually love it so much that not only are they a coffee company that sells delicious coffee, but they help entrepreneurs and coffee enthusiasts set up their own business with equipment and financing and all that stuff. So what you can do to help them out and to help us out a little bit is you can go to laurenzotti.coffee.com. 
That's .coffee, not .com, and enter discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. Check it out. At Lorenzotti Italy, coffee is their passion. They're just two guys who want to bring an excellent coffee to the U.S. and make business easier and more profitable for the passionate entrepreneurs who provide the best coffee experiences for their patrons. Check it out, Lorenzotti.coffee. Enter promo code LIONS for 10% off. Can you hear us, Lyle? How's it going, Lyle? How's it going? Okay, so you guys just heard from Tessie Castillo. want to thank her again uh, for coming on the show and the work she's done with, uh, with the Crimson Letters and really pulling all of this together, facilitating this interview today. Uh, she has helped me to bring Lyle May on the show. Uh, Lyle was convicted of double homicide in 1999 at the age of 19. He's currently on death row in North Carolina. While he's been incarcerated, he's managed to earn his GED, his associate's degree. He's also published two books and is working on a third. He's he's written articles for The Marshall Project, The J Journal, Prison Writers, and maintains a blog at beyondsteeldoors.com. Lyle, welcome to Felony Friday. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. And I started off with this question last time um, with your co-author, and I'm going to ask you this this same question first. When you uh, you know went through your trial and you first heard your sentence uh, that you were sentenced to uh, death row to a death sentence, um, what was that initial reaction like for you? What 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 was that like uh, emotionally to to hear that read? Well, I was still in a kind of a, a state of shock uh, from the conviction, the guilt innocence phase, and by the time that uh, they'd actually gone through uh, sentencing and, and read the verdict, it was just one of shock. There was, uh, you know, you, you often hear uh, or see uh, on TV the uh, reporting about people who go through these trials, and the comments are always something along the lines, oh, he looks stone-faced or he's not showing any emotion, that's generally because those people are in shock. Uh, It's not an ordinary situation, and it's hard to process not only all the information that goes on at trial and the different uh, testimony and the arguments and trying to keep up with all of that, but then, you know, to process this idea that you are being ripped away from your loved ones and uh, put in prison, not just in prison, but in prison to die. Uh, it, it's its difficult to get over. It's not the kind of thing that you just suddenly understand. It takes years to really process that capital trial, and I, I did that for me. Uh, so in, in that particular moment, uh, as the sentence was read, I, I was in, in a state of shock. Yeah, that's that's that makes sense. I mean, I and it, you know that's a good point you bring up. People see the see these faces, and you make assumptions on you know how are they not reacting? But uh, yeah, it's I mean that makes total sense that you're being complete shock at that point in time. So you've been um, you've been on death row for twenty years now, I, I guess. How over that like, twenty one? Sorry. Um, how has your attitude? 
uh, evolved over that time. You said it took you a couple a couple years. Um, that, what's that journey been like for you? It's been long, uh, and my attitudes evolved significantly. And I, I don't think I can quite uh, express how much it's changed. Uh, when I first fell uh, and went through that process of, of trying to understand how I'd gotten here and what that exactly means. Uh, it didn't suddenly dawn on me like, Oh gee, I, I need to, uh, change my ways. You know, th- that was certainly uh, part of the, the process, but at the same time, it's like, you know, figuring out, uh, like a shattered piece, a shattered glass, you know, you, you have to kind of examine each piece and, and figure out where it fits with the other and kind of put it back together to get an idea of what being made whole looks like. And as you're doing that, you're kind of discovering what your failings are and, and what your strengths are too. Uh, and when you do that, you, you kind of have to make a choice. You, you make a choice to say, okay, well, just because I've been broken doesn't mean I can't be put back together. And when you make that decision, uh, you have to, to recognize that the responsibility, or I should say the accountability for being made whole, for uh, evolving and changing, lies with, with you, with, with uh, or I should say with me, uh, in terms of becoming a better person, in terms of educating myself in terms of becoming spiritually awakened in terms of understanding the criminal legal process and as you go along and and time passes and you uh, slowly put the pieces back together you you discover a lot of things uh, for me it was that I enjoy writing I find that writing is a way of seeing and as I grow better at it, it becomes an accurate way of seeing, not just my life, but the lives of others around me and of this place that I'm in. And as I, I see the different problems that are within this system, that are within the lives of those around me, that are within my own life, uh, i Look for solutions because I, I'm. Once once you reach a point where you you've educated yourself and you you discover this way of seeing, uh, you don't just want to leave things broken. You you want to try to put them back together. You want to fix them. You want to find solutions for uh, these these various issues that you see and and you go at them. And that's kind of how I've developed. Uh, my time and, and my attitude toward that time. Yeah, I've, I've read some of your work and, uh, and you know, I've read your writing and, and it's excellent. And to talk about in the one article I read how, you know, I think you talked about your, I think you, you said you dropped out of high school when you were a sophomore and you really never even, you know, got into reading and, and writing back then. Um, I wanted to ask you, what were some of the, the books or, or some of the authors that 
you know, that either are your favorite authors or kind of motivated and, uh, and pulled you towards, you know, learning how to f- f- farther in your, uh, your own writing style. The first book that I can say honestly jumped out at me early on in my incarceration was Victor Frankel's Man's Search for Meaning. And it has been uh, on multiple occasions instrumental in uh, evolving my thinking and my approach to incarceration. Um, Frankel uh, essentially teaches that suffering is universal. And just as universal is our ability to find meaning in that suffering and to make it uh, worthwhile. I say that in, in the sense that, again, it goes back to this idea of holding yourself accountable every day for uh, your time on this earth and making that time meaningful and bringing purpose to it. And that's kind of the, the core lesson that I took away from Frank Earl. Frankel early on in my life. I didn't mm-hmm. totally, excuse me, early on in my incarceration, didn't totally uh, grasp it at the beginning. It's something I had to kind of uh, grow into. It's like wearing a pair of pants that are just a little bit too big for you right then and there, but you, you grow into them. You, you roll the, the legs a little bit and you, and you, you make the best of it. Um, but Man's Search for Meaning was, was certainly uh, a key book early on. I have to check that out. I, I have not read that. Um, I wanted to ask you about your your own writings, uh, your, your own books. So you've written two books. Could you tell us a little bit about those books and uh, the story behind them? Well, the first book, uh, Waiting for the Last Train, was kind of my first real foray into essay writing and me- memoir writing. I wrote it kind of at the suggestion of my mom. She wanted me to just sit down and write my story in the way that I understood it. And I did that. I, you know, did my best to do that. And it was kind of a more of an overview than a, a really deeply detailed story. Uh, it carried me through some of the more vivid memories of my childhood and not necessarily the best one. So it's kind of imbalanced in that way, and it seems uh, very negative. Uh, And that was something that was brought to my attention early uh, when both of my parents read it. Uh, But it was also, uh, again, I I mentioned writing as a way of seeing. It was also helpful and and cathartic in in many ways, Uh, and it awakened in me a desire to continue writing, to, to really dig into the hard work of understanding myself, my past, my present, and my future. Yeah, writing writing can be powerful, and, and getting those words on, on paper, um, that's, that's not surprising that, that it helped you through this difficult time. Um, I did want to talk to you, and we'll come back, I have some more questions um, about your, your time in prison, but I want to shift for a minute here and talk a little bit about just the criminal justice system. I, I know that you've written a lot about criminal justice reforms, so could, could you share with us some of the reforms that um, you are most passionate about, that you have written about or advocated for the most? Sure. Uh, I'll share a story with you. Uh, recently, the North Carolina Racial Justice Task Force that was convened by uh, the 
State Supreme Court Justice Anita Earls and Attorney General Josh Stein uh, held a public meeting in which they were uh, soliciting public comment about ways to address racial injustice and the uh, criminal injustice system. Uh, I took an opportunity to submit four proposals to that task force, and they did, in fact, receive them. Um, and those four proposals are these. Uh, the first was to commission an ombuds office that would oversee conditions of confinement in North Carolina prisons and jails, kind of act as an intermediary between the prison population and prison officials. Uh, the second proposal was to establish a rehabilitative mandate. You have 60 seconds remaining. In every North Carolina prison, and that's namely to uh, make sure that mental health, vocation, and higher education programs are implemented in every facility. The third was to create a second look mechanism that grants the North Carolina Parole Commission and post-release supervision the authority to review any kind of life sentence for people who have served a minimum of 25 years. And the fourth was simply to... Uh, you have 30 seconds remaining. ...to abolish the death penalty. And they, those proposals have been received, and, and they're currently being reviewed. And hopefully uh, in December, when they submit the report to the governor, they'll be included. Is, is it right that in North Carolina there is no parole? Is it- uh, yes and no, and I'll explain that on the second call. Okay. Hello? Hello. Okay, Lyle. Yeah, back to... Uh, Back to that question uh, I asked you about North Carolina, the, the situation with uh, with parole there. Right. So in October of 1994, the North Carolina Sentencing Commission changed the law and abolished parole for crimes committed after October of 1994. For crimes that have been committed before that date, there is still parole. Uh, an example of this I, I wrote of in paroling Michael Pence, an article that was published by Scalawag Magazine. And it explained how my friend uh, Michael had been convicted of a double homicide in 1978. Well, the laws back then were different. Uh, First-degree murder was a parole-eligible sentence after, uh, with a life, when you've done a minimum of 20 years on a life sentence. Well, he had been incarcerated for nearly 41 years, I think, before earning parole earlier this year. And that is just one example of people who have been sentenced for crimes that were committed before October 1994. For people who have been convicted of crimes that occurred after October of 1994, there is no parole. Uh, and that's largely put because uh, parole was abolished uh, by the Parole Commission, and they implemented what's called the Structured Sentencing Act, which creates mandatory minimums and uh, only a little bit of time off of a sentence uh, for good behavior or what's called uh, a minimum, mandatory minimum. And that's it. That's, you know, that's really the only uh, difference. Yeah, that, that jumped out to me. And I forget which of your writings I was reading. I, I did not know that about the North Carolina parole situation. Um, I'm curious, what's the status of, of, of your case? Do you have appeals that are left or what's your, what would be your path towards, um, you know, eventually getting it, getting released or getting, 
I guess paroled yourself. The only thing that I can say, and I have a very mean lawyer who will uh, jump on me if I say otherwise, is that I am contesting my conviction and sentence, and I am still currently under appeal and cannot say anything else. Gotcha. That makes sense. I won't ask you any more questions about that. Um, I did want to come back to your time uh, that you've been serving your prison for the past 21 plus years. Um, If you could take us through what a normal day in prison is, is like for you. For me, a normal day in prison is full of reading and writing and finding ways to stay focused on a number of tasks that I give myself. And I, I do my best to give myself an overwhelming amount of tasks so that I never lack for something to do. Uh, it helps me stay busy and it's good to be as busy as, you know, really needing extra hours in a day, even in prison. Uh, and I, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but that's the kind of stuff that I, I like to do, whether it's writing articles for Scalawag magazine, whether it's uh, creating new chapters for uh, the book I'm working on, Class of One, The Transformative Journey of Higher Education in Prison, or completing my uh, college courses or applying for new college courses. You know, there is always something to do, something to schedule, uh, somebody I need to talk with, a professor I need to consult with. Uh, and I prefer my time that way. I, I couldn't, I think I would probably lose my mind if I, I didn't have those sorts of things to do. And there have been plenty of people in prison and that are in prison now losing their minds because there is nothing to do and they don't have access to that higher education and kind of the, the programs that I've uh, established for myself over these years. That's that's really interesting. I, I think that's that's good advice. You know, when you talk about giving yourself an overwhelming amount of things to do, uh, maybe that's not good advice for everyone. Maybe a lot of people get, will get overwhelmed, but that's something that I try to do myself personally. Um, the problem is sometimes, you know, you, you'll lose track of something or, you know, something will fall through the cracks and you'll, you'll, you'll kind of beat yourself up over it, at, you know, after it, uh, you know, if you set a deadline for yourself, you don't meet it. So I'm curious, how do you keep yourself on tracks? How do you prioritize what you want to work on that day? That's actually a, a really good question because I'm struggling with that now. Uh, I have, I guess you'd say, a vision board, which is, it's, you know, kind of a, a finessed version of a dry erase board. It's a piece of plastic trash bag that's taped to my wall that I use uh, washable markers on, and I track all of my uh, lessons for the courses I'm enrolled in. I track the chapters that I'm writing for my book. I track... track uh, speaking engagements like this one for Lions of Liberty uh, and the two that I have coming up for Columbia University. I make sure that all of my dates are accurate and times are written down and I stay as organized as I possibly can. And even then, I still manage to fall behind sometimes because, you know, I just need a breathing room. Uh, And and when those times occur, I'm working on being uh, more gentle with myself, but that's a work in progress. 
That's that's amazing. So you're, you're keeping track of your, your tasks on a, you said, a trash bag that you have taped up to the wall. That takes away any excuses that anyone in the outside world makes for themselves for, for keeping track of things and, and losing track of things. Um, that's that, that's awesome to hear. So I, I did want to come back again to reform for, for a minute here or however long it takes and kind of get a little more specific. I, I know you, you read through your uh, your proposals there, which was great. But if you could kind of imagine a uh, you know a world where you're you're put in charge of the prison system, uh, what reforms would you put in place with regards specifically to educational programs um, and or you know with regards to uh, personal development programs? I think there is uh, a misunderstanding that by establishing a rehabilitative mandate, it necessarily costs money. That's not always the case, or at least it's only part of the case. Immediately, the thing that could change overnight that would be absolutely free is the way prison officers are trained to treat people in prison. They too often look at them like property. And when you have that mindset, when you don't see the people who are under your charge as in need of rehabilitation, then you're not going to treat them like they need rehabilitation. And that becomes a problem because then you generate animosity and uh, you see a lot of what you often hear about in the news. And just simply by training prison officers to more ably respond to their charges, you know, as human beings, it would change significantly and and go a long way toward helping to uh, establish a rehabilitative ideal. And then, then you have to fund it. You have to fund uh, higher education. You have to fund vocation and you have to make it a mandatory requirement. This is not something that can be optional. And you know, I, I say that, but sometimes there there has to be forced use. And in this instance, people who are in prison need to be habilitated before they can be rehabilitated. And that habilitation comes through education. So at, at what point in your own journey, just to get a little bit more specific, I know we talked about your, your evolution, but can you point to like a specific moment in time where your attitude changed where something clicked for you and, and you decided to, you wanted to change your course and start reading more, start writing. It was maybe around 2007 that I had taken uh, about the fifth course uh, from UNC Chapel Hill. And I, I, clung to the idea that this is something that, you know, saved me from ordinary prison life. It opened my mind in ways that I, I never even considered before. It was hard to think, it's hard to imagine and dream if you don't have the fuel to do so. Uh, and higher education provided that for me. And once it did, I, I couldn't ever see leaving it. I could never see not having it. And once that had clicked over my mind and, and I went to my sponsor, I'm like, hey, look, I'm not going to stop doing this. Would you be willing to let me switch universities and pursue a degree program? I, you know, I would like it to 
to mean something beyond me just doing courses and, and learning for the intrinsic value, you know, and, and he agreed. And I switched to Ohio University and, and haven't looked back. Uh, that, I believe, is the moment at which I, I left prison life behind, that I left any old ideas that I, I might have clung to, that I, I couldn't do it or that I was incapable or incompetent uh, because the, there was proof otherwise. And the grades I was earning, the comments from professors I was receiving, and that was the proof. Something you said there just jumped out to me, and if you could elaborate on it, you said you left prison life behind. What does that What does that mean for you? Prison is a place where choice still occurs on a daily basis. There are a lot of things that you can do that can get you in trouble. Uh, it's really easy to uh, step outside of the rules because there are so many. Um, but if you have kind of your own path, if you have your own sense of purpose, then those things no longer matter. You no longer want, you're no longer interested in the the day-to-day gossip, the, uh, you know, using things to take your, using substances to uh, take your mind away from, you know, your responsibilities there is, I guess, uh, more intent in, in your daily living uh, by removing yourself from prison, from that, the idea of, you know, what it means to become institutionalized. And you begin to think critically. And I, I think that, more than anything else, is what has separated me from a, a lot of people in here, is that ability to think critically and I, I wish more than more than a lot of things that I, I could extend that to other people to show them how to think critically and if I could I would certainly teach them yeah that's that's profound if, if that's something that could somehow be be bottled up I, I, I think that would solve a lot of problems not only in prisons but uh but around the world because I think there's a lack, a lack of critical thinking um, we have an, an yeah. epidemic uh, throughout this world. I, I did want to ask you um, a little, maybe a more deeper question. So I, I know you've put a lot of time in your writing. You've written two books. You, you've, uh, you know, you've been a co-author with uh, Crimson Letters. You're working on another book. Um, you're doing the speaking engagements, and you've just talked about, you know, leaving prison life behind, and uh, you know, sort of, you know, having the influence beyond the prison walls. How do you want to be remembered? For your time on Earth, um, you know, when people look back on, on on your life, what do you want them to say about you? That I lived life the second time as I should have the first. What do you mean by that? That once I discovered uh, the importance of education, once I was granted that first opportunity, that I never let it an opportunity pass me by again. That I from then on did the absolute best I could every time that in doing you had 60 seconds remaining I was able to prove my potential as a human being and continue striving 
Well, that is that is powerful stuff, Lyle. And uh, we have you know a couple seconds left here. Um, do you have any any parting words, any advice, anything you'd like to say uh, to my audience for before uh, I let you go? Yes, uh, I thank you very much for having me. And I would like people to remember who listen to this or who you have thirty seconds remaining about people in prison that they're human beings first. That prisons are a responsibility of the public and. Just because you don't see us does not mean that that responsibility goes away. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Lyle. And I appreciate uh, everything you're doing, appreciate your attitude, and appreciate your contribution here to the criminal justice reform movement. Well, thank you, and I appreciate it. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode of Felony Friday, another awesome episode. Just want to remind everyone, before you get going here, off to your next uh, next podcast and your shuffle or whatever it is you're doing with your, uh, your day today, I want to thank you for giving me your time and uh, listening to this interview. I want to ask you, please to share this with a friend. The only way that we're going to expand this message, that we're going to reform this criminal justice system, is by sharing interviews just like this with your network. Very easy to do. And I also want to ask you to please, if you have not yet checked it out, you need to go to the Lions of Liberty store. It's lionsofliberty.store. We have a bunch of new T-shirt designs, really interesting stuff, really eye-catching designs. Uh, Of course, our taxation is death shirt has been a hit. It's selling like crazy. We now have the uh, the tax on wax off shirt, just awesome. And and there's more coming. We're really trying to get into uh, what we're calling it the Lions of Liberty brand of shirts. So you're going to get the cool design on the front and then up, just real small, up by the tag on the back, you're going to have our Are You Ready to Roar logo. Uh, we're trying to, you know, take another angle here and influence people through, uh, you know, some snazzy T-shirts. So check it out, lionsofliberty.store. And remember, if you're in the Lions of Liberty Pride, you get 20% off. So for as little as five bucks a month, you're going to get 20% off all your T-shirt orders. So to join the Pride, go to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty and... With that being said, guys, thank you so much for joining me. Have a great weekend or week or whenever you're listening to this. Just have an awesome day. I'll talk to you next week. This is John Odermatt signing off. Always remember to keep your head up and the fire is a liberty burning.